This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. From MPB Think Radio, it's Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Lacey Alexander, filling in for Kevin Farrell today, here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So when people bring up wildlife in Mississippi, naturally you think of animals that live in rural, woodsy areas. Mississippi is, of course, predominantly rural, but we do have our urban areas, so what happens to animals? Animals when they get into these urban areas, do they belong there? Our guest for today's show is Adam Ronke, an urban wildlife specialist who is here to tell us about what these animals are doing living in places like Tupelo, South Haven, and even the heart of Jackson. And if you happen to miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it now repeats on Saturday mornings at 6. So with that being said, good morning, everyone. Good morning. We just listened to a very cool segment on NPR about beavers. That was that was interesting and well-timed. Uh, Libby, what do you <laughs> you seeing around your front porch these okay. days? Well, I guess I should mention beaver. We do have a, <laughs> <laughs> some beaver down the hill that, uh, you know, there are mixed feelings about beaver mm-hmm. depending on where they mm-hmm. set up their homestead. They can be your best friend or your biggest enemy that week. <laughs> so they can be controversial, but I've always loved to see them in the wild and to the little bit you get to watch them feels like a great treat. Yeah. Um, and while we're talking about deer this year, I guess maybe my big event of yesterday, you can see what a, what kind of life I lead, <laughs> the wildlife nerd. Um, I was um, just about dusk. I was cutting through a little, the only field we have on our property, a little field and um you know, minding my own business, looking around. I might have been talking to myself, who knows, but... All at once, I heard all kinds of a ruckus and racket just, I mean, maybe 20 yards ahead of me, I don't know, and a big buck stood up, and I guess he had just been snoozing in our, um, we don't hunt on our little piece of property, but there's hunting going on all around, I don't know, so I assume this big buck found a place to take a nap where he thought nobody was going to bother him, because uh, if they hang out at our house, they usually get left alone for a while. But um, he he looked embarrassed as he turned around, looked me right in the <laughs> eye. But um, after all the acting a little bit nervous and worried when he got up so fast and leaves went everywhere. And um, then he just calmly walked into the woods. So I guess he... He assessed me very quickly, yeah. I assume. Well, what, I wonder was, what woke him up. I expected him to run. I think I woke him up. <laughs> you know? You're the problem. <laughs> I think I woke him up, yeah. And maybe, you know, that seems like an odd time for him to be sleeping right there at dusk is when supposedly they get mm. up and eat, right? Yeah, it's typically they're more active times, but, yeah. uh, you know, they can be laying down at any point. Yeah. So The word is that we've got a really um, – small acorn crop this year probably because of the drought and um 
that's the main thing they eat in the winter. So I mm-hmm. guess he's checking all around looking for where to find <laughs> acorns. And he there was a, a, a nice big red oak where he was. So a few acorns on the ground I've noticed, but not not like often. But I have seen a lot of nice rubs or scrubs um, where they take their antlers and I think sometimes hoofs too. Yeah, the and, and yeah, rubs and scrapes. Make a, a nice big um, place on the ground, Aww. and they knock away the leaves and stuff. And the cool thing about it is, it's kind of a a, a communication area yeah. for them. They leave their scent there, and then all the deer that come into that area can check out who's around and leave their scent as well. It's like a smoke signal. Yeah, like, I think I'm gets, hanging out here. Yeah, and sometimes of year it gets complicated, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Adam knows a lot more about that than I do as to how many bucks are going to be in the area and which does they want to keep for themselves, Aww. that kind of stuff. Mm. So it's, it gets kind of complicated. That's so anyway, that was, that was it's, kind it's, of It's not biggie. as sweet as you make it to sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a little, little more aggressive than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I was going to say, Lacey's yeah, they, uh, adoring they can, this a little too much. They yeah. can get a little yeah. wild, can't they? Yeah. I'm, but, I'm thinking Bambi. Y'all are y'all are scientists. Yeah. Y'all yeah. are thinking a lot yeah. more yeah. logical. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, cute. Yeah, Bambi's um. daddy doesn't put up with a lot. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Bambi's daddy. Yeah. Yeah. And then let's see. I've been looking for. I think I saw my hermit thrush yesterday. Uh, they make a a beautiful song, which unfortunately they don't use this time of year at all. Huh. So hermit thrushes are here in the winter only or at least around my house. I mm-hmm. think the maps are kind of changing a little mm-hmm. bit, but mm-hmm. I've, I've never seen one except in the winter, so I do like to see them in the winter. Um, I see them in the Rocky Mountains and in the Cascades in the summer, and I have been able to hear them sing out there, so it's a bird I really love to see, and it's kind of fun for me to know that they're in my little piece of the world in the winter. So they're there. I've seen the ruby-crowned kinglets, which are one of my very favorites, and I'm still looking for a hooded morganser. I have not seen one on my property or at LaFleur's Bluff this year. So anyway, I think it's a lot of fun to get out and find those winter residents. Mm-hmm. I'm still enjoying my year-round birds, but the things that only come in the winter. Yeah. And I haven't seen a um, yellow-bellied sapsucker mm-hmm. this winter yet at my place. Or I'm sure you got even. white-throated sparrows, though. I've got white-throated yeah. sparrows, and I love hearing them in the morning. That's when, that's when you know, winters showed up in Mississippi for the yeah. whole six weeks that we have it, so... But, um, yeah, they come from far, far up north, and I'm a little partial to them since I had to walk through the bogs of the Adirondacks in their breeding territory, getting eaten alive by mosquitoes and everything else, so recording them. But they show up around our bird feeders. Um, and, and once they're here, they're here usually until February, March, and mm, they start pushing out. I won't try to make this song, but it's beautiful. Yeah. Aww. Oh, oh. Well, there's... The Americans go, oh, Sam Peabody, 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 and then the uh, mm-hmm. uh, Canada goes, oh, Canada, 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 yeah. <laughs> with their songs. So, what, yeah. depending on what line uh, side of the line you're on, yeah. but but them and the, I've uh, seen a lot of uh, um, 
uh, winter wrens that pop up uh, also uh, deer hunting you'll see a lot of them they look just like our carolina wrens but much smaller and they have a kind of a twinkling um, song is the best way i can describe it i am not musical whatsoever so i am not going to attempt any of that but it, they're definitely different they're much smaller than our carolina wrens which is the the little brown bird that ends up in your garage as soon as you open it oh, and, yeah. and builds a nest within six minutes of you uh, going to the store and back. So, and they're here year-round. The yeah, the Carolinas. But yeah. the, the winter wren, there's just no word but precious. They're so yeah. – they're uh, – they're, I mean, you know, they're like a toy. They're yeah, such a cute little bird. That's they're right. really adorable. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so cool. Well, winter in Mississippi is some people's spring, so it Definitely. is. Yeah. It is interesting to see what our winter animals are. Yeah, uh, Doctor Major, let's check in with you. How are things going at the clinic? And have you seen anything new about this canine respiratory illness that's going around? First of all. I have a yard there, okay. I, <laughs> I don't envy the people. A lot of the people have, you know, a, a pair of deer and a, a fawn, you know, illuminated in the yard. We have we have deer that actually sleep almost on the porch, front porch, so it's it's kind of amazing. Uh, I guess we could put a light or two on one of them, but uh, there's they're something else. And we have a wooded area next to the house, and it's their pathway to the magistrates. Uh, we're not that far from the trace, but we have anywhere from five to ten that may come through at one time. But we have a couple of does and fawns that stay right there at the house almost. Maybe they think it's secure. Don't know. As far as the uh, canine respiratory mystery disease, they're still working on it as far as uh, trying to come up with the right treatment and everything. We personally have not seen it here. Uh, however, there may be some cases that go undetected as far as as far as saying, "Hey, this is that particular disease," because it's so similar to the regular kennel cough, which is highly contagious, which we vaccinate for, and seems to occur uh, randomly during the year. So, no, I haven't seen any cases of that here at our clinic. Well, thank goodness, because a lot of people are going to be traveling for the holidays. And so when you board those pups, that's probably where they're most likely to get ill, like you said. What are your recommendations to those that are going to be traveling uh, to keep their doggos safe this holiday season? Great question. And I guess the point is is that they need to be vaccinated for the uh, traditional kennel cough vaccine. And possibly it would be wise to vaccinate for influenza, uh, canine influenza, if, in fact, you're boarding. Uh, a lot of people are opting to have maybe a house sitter come and take care of the pets. I guess you would call it a pet sitter slash house sitter, which may be an ideal way to keep them from being exposed to other dogs. Uh, that's avoid large groups of dogs. You know, anytime you're traveling any distance, you have to stop maybe at a roadside park, this sort of thing. Uh, always try to go to an area where there are not any other dogs, uh, thinking in terms of both the communicable diseases that might be on the ground, such as parvovirus or uh, intestinal parasites, and stay away from other dogs. I think that's a very wise, wise thing. Yeah. As far as the other things that they're seeing, they are seeing in some of the shelters. And also uh, in, um, for example, dog competition, dog shows, this sort of thing. So you have to be careful uh, in those situations. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this was at first it started in certain northern segments of the country. Uh, Do you see it moving around or is it kind of staying contained to those much, much colder parts of the United States? I think we're seeing it when I say we in the country, even Florida, uh, cases reported in Alabama. Uh, So it's just a matter of time until we have cases that are reported here. And as I said, we may have seen some and not really known what it was because some of the uh, traditional Kilkoff cases may last anywhere from two to four weeks, which is a long time to hear your dog coughing. Mm -hmm. So you try to give supportive treatment in those cases, and it can be a combination of uh, bacteria and virus, so that can make it difficult to treat. Mm -hmm. I've got two dogs at home, and they are staying locked in the house until I decide it's safe for them to go out. Um, Adam Ronke is an urban wildlife specialist here to tell us about just that urban wildlife. Adam, I warned you segment two was going to be your segment, (laughs) and segment two has come. So welcome welcome back to the show, Adam. What have you been working on? I I believe the exact words you used were Adam Heavy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which was my nickname when I was coming up in high school. No. (laughs) (laughs) Until recently, I also... Uh, still continue that into adulthood, but uh, um, or or lunchbox was my other nickname that some still call me. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, we're uh, we've been uh, I guess it's in the fifth year now of really I've, I've done urban wildlife most of my career here since I'm located in the Jackson area uh, working for the Extension Service for Mississippi State, um, but more uh, focused in the sense of 100% of my time now is dedicated to the urban wildlife program. Uh, in the last four or five years. So uh, we really got kicked off with our uh, monitoring, uh, urban wildlife monitoring program in 2019. Um, and we are now in what, in our going in our fifth year, is that correct? Yes. And so our fifth, fifth yeah, fifth monitoring year. So uh, we've talked about that before, but just, just briefly, that is a collaboration with 50 other cities across uh, North America. Now Central and South America, two in Europe and one in Africa. And, wow. And uh, uh, I believe a couple coming on in Asia and maybe some of the other island nations. My goodness. Uh, so that's uh, based out of Lincoln Park Zoo um, and the Urban Wildlife Institute. So that has really grown leaps and bounds. In fact, when I was working up uh, the information for the show, the l- last time I updated us on that, there was only – 28 partners and we were the 29th or 30th so we've Mm -hmm. doubled in size in the last couple of years so uh, but that's been a lot of fun and and in a nutshell what that is is basically we're working in urban green spaces throughout jackson metro so it's jackson proper and the surrounding communities uh, identifying green spaces where we uh, put out uh, trail cameras uh, with permission of course um, and all the parameters that are needed for for that to protect everyone's privacy and 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 uh, that's that sense but the cameras are out four times a year and actually that's why ann and i are dressed the way we are today because we just put out a bunch of cameras this morning and we've got about another 16 to put out this afternoon so uh, but also our master naturalist which libby is is one herself um have uh, been manning the cameras for the last five years and then also go through the huge amount of imagery uh that we get from those cameras and uh, these are new numbers uh thanks to ann coming on uh in the last couple months but uh we've processed eighty thousand, nearly eighty thousand images in the last five years oh my gosh um and I always add to that that two people have to look at each of those images and independently verify what's in those images. Mm. So 
you can basically double that. And then if there's a disagreement of what's in the image, one of us comes in. So three people get to <laughs> look at it. That's not Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, we have another 40,000 in waiting. Um, so we're essentially about 18 months behind wow. um, from where we are currently. Um, and we've detected over 120,000 wildlife detections. Well, what a good problem uh, to have. Yeah. So um, so people often think of like you opened up with, uh, um, you know, urban areas are, are is that where wildlife belong or people don't think of urban and, and wildlife. We have plenty of wildlife uh, in our urban areas. And it's not just Jackson. This is They get similar numbers in Chicago and these very, very urbanized uh, areas uh, with that. But we've detected 17 different species of mammals, anything from coyotes in downtown Jackson to bobcats uh, in Ridgeland and Madison uh, to a family of otters on the same trail with the bobcat uh, uh, in Madison, and then uh, nutria, flying squirrels, all sorts of stuff, um, wow. down to squirrels uh, galore, for sure, um, <laughs> and uh, even uh, cottontail rabbits and such in Smith Park and our most urban urban site right there in Smith Park in downtown Jackson behind the governor's mansion. So That's crazy. Yeah. Abram, Abram, we don't have any coyotes at MPB, do we? You know what? We're keeping an eye out for him regardless. <laughs> you don't, but you have him nearby, and I'm not going to tell you where. But, uh, Please don't. Please don't. I don't need that alarm in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they're fine. They're fine. They belong here, too. As uh, I live in Clinton. That's our saying. You belong here. So <laughs> Yeah. But, um, yeah, so we have a lot of cool critters. Um, and Jackson's set up uh, really well for that, that we are still a, we are a sprawled-out city for our size. Um, but we still have a lot of green space uh, in our city, and, and the huge chunk of that is the Pearl River, which provides a large green corridor for critters to move uh, throughout our city. The Fuller uh, Bluff Park system right right down the road uh, here and, and attached to that area, and then also areas like the Natchez Trace. Um, but just our general layout of a lot of green space, urban green space throughout uh, golf courses, cemeteries, um, cemeteries and golf courses alone provide a huge green space for, mm. for a lot of our critters uh, that, that we're monitoring. So it's been a fun project that we're doing. And, you know, we often get a question like, so why are you doing all that? Because um, it's a lot of work, believe me. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work. Um, and in a nutshell, we're doing that to, you know, set up any monitoring program. We're doing it for a purpose and a long-term purpose. Uh, to contribute data to larger projects than just just our projects here in Jackson. Uh, but what we're hoping as we, we get closer to the six, seven, eight years, we can start using that information not only for educational purposes, but also contribute to ecology uh, uh, projects, um, but start using it for urban planning purposes in the sense of when, you know, the good, bad, and ugly of urban wildlife, everyone likes critters, but when they cross that line, how can we start using that data to maybe help make some management decisions in certain areas uh, uh, with that info. So that's, in a nutshell, what we're doing. We have a lot more going on than just that, but um, that's that's the purpose of that project. So, Sure. And, and in popular culture, it's perceived as one or the other. You either have heavy wildlife or heavy urbanization. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like you can't have both. Yeah, so yeah. obviously you are learning that that's very untrue. Correct. These urban areas, why are they important for the wildlife? Are they nurturing to this wildlife at all? Or are the wildlife just kind of figuring it out? So it's a it's a good way of putting it. So it's not all wildlife benefits from urbanization. In fact, a lot of wildlife does not benefit from urbanization. But those are what we call urban avoiders. Uh, as soon as people move into the area, 
they're they're out. Yeah. Um, but there are certain critters like coyotes, raccoons, um, uh, squirrels, rabbits, deer that do extremely extremely well to the point where we actually even label them to the point of uh, uh, the technical term would be human obligates in the sense that they do very, very well. And in fact, almost to a point where they depend on not only just us being present, but our management regimes. By that, I mean how we maintain our yards, how we develop our cities. Um, Jackson is perfect deer habitat. As you guys were just saying, you have deer right around this building. Well, this is perfect deer habitat because I love edge habitat, open areas to bed, but a lot of things to eat, whether it's landscaping plants or native browse. Um, we do we set up our cities very, very well. Another very common species is uh, Canada geese. Um, golf courses all around Jackson and all around the country contact us all the time about managing Canada geese. Same thing with office parks. Every office park is set up perfectly for Canada geese. And it's interesting, in the 70s, that started happening because we started building catch basins off of parking lots and office parks and residential areas to catch the water that's coming off of pavement, things like that. Let it process naturally in that pond before we put it back into water areas. Well, it also looks pretty, too, so we put a lawn or you know turf landscape and everything per. Well, that's set up perfectly for Canada geese. Mm-hmm. That that's exactly what they're looking for. So we actually, by trying to solve another problem, we actually created another habitat, <laughs> which was great until they're defecating all over whole nine, and you know you're trying to <laughs> yeah. putt through it. So, um, or they're chasing your dog or or yourself uh, or your children, <laughs> or your children uh, in the springtime. So. Again, everyone likes them to a certain point, and then there is a different threshold for every person uh, with that. So, um, so yes, yeah, certain species do really, really well in urban areas. Others do not. So it, it's important to point that out. And even, even within the ones that do very well, some do very well up until a point. Um, and actually opposite of what you think, coyotes do pretty well across the board with urbanization, regardless of how intense it is. In fact, they're actually heavier, which is a body weight is a good indicator of how healthy they are they do better in some areas of downtown chicago mm. you know like where they dye the water green for the st patty's day parade <laughs> than they do with their counterparts out in the agricultural areas wow which is pretty impressive yeah uh if you've ever flown over chicago it's nothing but lights at night for hours on end it seems like when you fly out of there so um and then other species like rac- raccoons do really well in suburban areas in areas like Jackson, but they start dropping out a little bit when it gets super, super urbanized. Yeah. Uh, a lot of concrete. So I, I like that you brought up the geese at my old uh, residential neighborhood in Madison. We had a big pond right there when you first drove in. Right. And those geese were there year round and they would get in the road and you would honk at them and they would just look at you like what about it mm-hmm. they were not scared of your big old chevy right. they did not care and, and that, right. i'd always found that fascinating that these geese have been here so long that massive cars don't even phase them that's anymore. right and well and that's a really good point so it's not only the the biological adaptations for these critters that are really good at usually generalists are really really good at adapting to urban environments things that don't need a very specific uh, element of habitat or very specific food. Those specialists tend to get pushed out unless it perfectly lines up with them in an urban environment. Geese, white-tailed deer, 
I mean, they honestly could survive in any of our parking lots with grass coming out of the cracks of the grass and long or uh, cracks of the pavement, which we have plenty of, as we all know, um, <laughs> and, and just a little bit of cover nearby. So I always say people always talk about snakes being within 10 feet of wherever you're sitting. I would argue that there's probably either a goose or a white-tailed deer in Jackson <laughs> anywhere within t- you know, 100 yards of where you're sitting for sure because um, they're just that adaptable. But they're behaviorally adaptable too. They, they get used to it. Dr. Major pointed out they lay right in his front yard with no fear whatsoever. Mm. Now, being a deer hunter myself, I spent uh, you know about two weeks so far in the woods and being a biologist, I hate to admit this publicly, but I've seen maybe four deer the whole time I'm actually <laughs> trying to go out and harvest one, <laughs> but yet we can drive down the Natchez Trace and see a hundred between between Ridgeland and Clinton. They can you smell know. it on you. Yeah, they know so your intentions. Yeah, exactly. If I was out there bird oh, I watching. Believe it. Yeah, yeah. I believe it. If I was sure. out there bird watching, I'd yeah. get run over by one, you know. So, right. But, but, yeah, those two points are really important, that they, they can adapt for the food and what they need, but their behavior also is very adaptable uh, to that scenario. And, so, and some species just are not able to do that, and that's why you tend to see them get pushed out once once uh, uh, civilization, quote-unquote, moves in. So. Yeah. I love this conversation. We just got back from Walt Disney World in Orlando, mm-hmm. and my dad joked that if reincarnation is real, he wants to come back as one of the ducks on the Disney World property because they eat better than any other duck in the world. <laughs> and so it's it's fascinating that we're having these <laughs> conversations about how... Uh, no how- offense to your dad, but that, that is a nightmare of mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's good. That's it's, good. Every, it, to each their own. Yeah. Each their own. So. It, but it's fascinating that we're talking about how urbanization, people consider, and, and for the most part they're right, that you know when you tear down paradise and build up a parking lot, you're actually doing harm to animals. But you're saying there are certain species, not a lot, but there are right. certain species that actually see that we take care of our yards and they want to take part in that or see yeah, that we have built man-made water and they want to take part in that. So, right. Yeah, I mean, any biologist would tell you that it's probably a negative overall in in if you were just to just to do a zero sum game kind of thing but the world doesn't operate that way it's all gray so yes certain species do not benefit from it others like white-tailed deer have very much uh, benefited from that. And when we say urbanization, we need to realize, you know, everyone when we, they hear urban, they think downtown Jackson Smith Park kind of urban. When we're talking about urban, it's it's a gradient. So you've got downtown Jackson urban, and then you've got Gluckstadt urban, which is suburban five ten acre lots. But that's still very much different than uh, you know uh, uh, any of the the rural. Also, went blank on all the rural uh, uh, communities that we have in, in the state. But anywhere out in the Delta, where you know you're lucky if you're going to see another car for an hour. Um, there is a very, very large gradient of urban. And for that fact, that's just for Jackson. But we don't even qualify as an urban, I think we're technically an urban cluster, according to the uh, census. Wow. So we don't, we're not even big enough to be a suburb of one of the smaller suburbs of Chicago. So they're a whole different urban. What I call it here when I'm talking with my partners out there, I say, we're Mississippi urban. You guys are <laughs> urban urban. Yeah. You know, these metropolitan areas are so much different than, than these smaller cities like Jackson. Like, would I be considered urban? Yeah, Clint, Clint, Clinton. No, but I mean, where I am. Yeah, but I'm you're not right in on, Clinton. You're you know, in Clinton, I'm, but I'm, you're right on the edge of that matrix to where it starts transitioning over. Yeah. Um, but um, so it's not only the 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 what the landscape looks like, 
but it's also the management mentality that comes with it. There's a lot of folks that live out where you are, uh, living in Clinton and Gluckstadt yeah. and other areas, that will mow five-acre lots that look yeah. just like a lawn mm-hmm. that would be segmented up into 40 houses and other areas, but they're still managing it with the same approach. So it's not just what it looks like in the landscape. It's also the mentality that comes comes with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, so that can have a lot of impact. Uh, on how wildlife respond to that. So, Gotcha. Lacey Alexander here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Harfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Kevin Farrell is out this morning, so I'm filling in his place today. Our guest of honor for the hour, Adam Ronke, is a specialist <laughs> in urban wildlife. And if you've missed any of today's program, you can always subscribe to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. Let's go ahead and jump to the phones here Daryl in Memphis, Tennessee, has been waiting patiently. Um, Daryl, go ahead. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Actually, it's Darwin out of Memphis. I have a question. First of all, I'm a truck driver. Now, and I know we've all seen these birds uh, down the highway, and I've actually seen one in the neighborhood before. Well, maybe three. Um, they're, they're scavenger birds. Right? Both of them are, are black. The two sets that I'm speaking of, one is bigger than the other uh, type of bird, and then the other is a skinny, a, a, a little skinnier. Yeah. Uh, but they're not small. So could you all, I mean, one, now the bigger bird, once their wings are expanded, they expand their wings. The tip of it is a, is white. Now that's the huge scavenger bird. Now I don't, I don't know if that's a scavenger or a black hawk. Because I don't see many of them in a group. The other bird, scavenger bird, now I've seen them just actually rip a carcass, a deer apart, you know, and sometimes they get a little feisty with one another. <laughs> now, what are these two, what are these, these birds? I want to know the you, actual name of you them. Did a, yeah, you did a perfect... Perfect. I was going to say, you just description, description of both of, of the them very two well. species of vultures that we have in Mississippi. Yeah, yeah that's a Black very, very observant. Black vultures are the littler ones. That's right. And then you've got the turkey vulture. And you described the, the coloration yeah. pattern mm-hmm. perfectly. So, yeah, the black vulture, the one you referred to initially, is smaller, but actually ends up typically being the more aggressive uh, go figure, kind of like my second child being the smaller of the two <laughs> brothers. Yeah. Um, but they are jet black with a, I would call a, a muted or a smoky gray head, uh, but you described it perfectly. When their wings are expanded, when they're flying or they're on the side of the road, they will have these uh, kind of quasi-smoky, glossy white tips on the underneath part of, of, of their wings. The turkey vulture is more brown in color, but it's a very dark brown, um, so it can look black. They tend to be taller. They look thinner, where the, the black vulture is more stocky. Um, but the reason they're called turkey vultures is because, uh, especially when they're fully mature, they have a turkey-like head. Uh, in fact, that it's red, and everyone thinks it may be covered in blood, this and that. No, it's the actual coloration of the bird's head. Both of their heads are, quote-unquote, naked for obvious reasons. When you're sticking your head in a stinky carcass, if you've got all those feathers and stuff over your head, you're going to have a lot of extra cleaning to do. So it kind of kind of helps keeping yourself a little little clean when you're eating dead stuff. Um, but um, So you described it 
perfectly. The only thing uh, I didn't hear you say with the turkey vulture, when it's flying, it has a very particular flight pattern. It's called tetrahedral, so the wings look like they're in a V, so that's how you can remember it, TV, turkey vulture. Um, and then if you look underneath their wings, it's almost split perfectly in half. It'll be darker and lighter uh, underneath the, the wing, where, again, the black vulture... Um, we'll have more of a rounded tip on the black wings, or a rounded tip overall, and then that white spot on the wings. So when you see them even flying in the air now as you're, well, I guess you need to focus on the road since you're driving, so don't look up. But um, <laughs> when you see them flying away, even at a distance, um, you'll be able to tell from just seeing those wing flaps uh, from that shape and that description. And you had it 90% of the way there. So really, really good job. Not a lot of people pay that close attention to it, uh, but I'm assuming you have a lot of time on the road so you see plenty of them and i will say being a truck driver you know you'll be likely safe if you come up over a hill on them too quick and they try to get up they they could uh meet your windshield so you may want to give them a little yield uh when you can because i i do have some stories of people having a black vulture hit their windshield and then come in the side window and then decide to regurgitate what they just ate in their back seat. Oh, my gosh. Not good. Not good. Or to throw it up on your windshield. Exactly, especially in a 105-degree day in uh, West Texas. Uh, The one story I was told, so I can't even imagine. What a series of unfortunate events. Yeah. 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 I specifically asked, uh, I I said, I have kids, and you can barely get the smell out of the car sometimes. I'm assuming you just burned the car on site uh, with that, because there's no resale value if you've got turkey vulture or black vulture guts uh, (laughs) regurgitation in your in your uh, interior i highly doubt it you're going to get that out so but good job that was a really good descrip- description You'd, yeah you would you have the yeah. skills to make a good bird or yeah, you know. do. yeah. <laughs> adam is troy uh, i have yeah. a question about this i know the vultures uh took a pretty big hit with the uh, bird flu uh what a year ago mm-hmm. or so ago has the population kind of rebounded some i know i don't see as many in our area here as i did prior to that yeah i'm gonna give you the the state government answer on that one troy i I don't have those numbers in front of me but um um sorry i can't i can't say for 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 certain but i i've uh i'm not gonna say i'm overly overly concerned uh about it uh because i haven't heard uh, uh any changes in any management or protection status with it, but I can I can check that for you. Uh, luckily, if I have time today, we're going to be swinging over to see you and pick up some dog feed. Uh, so uh, okay. we'll we'll see if we can get that answer for you about this afternoon. Sounds good. Thank you. All right, our Memphis friend, thank you so much for calling in and doing such uh, good work with your bird watching. We're very impressed by your detail there. Well, thank you so much. And you guys have a merry, merry Christmas. Same and, to you. You guys are so knowledgeable. I, I listen to you from time to time, especially when you're speaking about the animals and whatnot. Well, call so, us again. Hey, I enjoy the show. Awesome. All right. Take care. Be safe. Okay. Thank you. Happy holidays to you. Let's keep on the phones. We've got another guest that has some questions for us. Flinch and Jackson, you are on the air. Hey, good morning, y'all. This is Fletch. Hope y'all are doing well. Good morning. Um, I had a question about the coyote, but but since y'all are talking about the, the vultures, um, I've noticed where they tend to um, roost or congregate in dead trees, and I thought that was kind of ironic. They're uh, they're scavengers. <laughs> why do they Why do they get in dead trees? <laughs> Of all the years (laughs) I've been in it, I've never made that link together. That's really good. Um, 
it, it's primarily, uh, uh, and this I I don't have the scientific citations to give to you this, but they're they're usually large trees over uh, swampy areas or large urban trees that are dead. Um, it's likely because they're easily spotted and just their locomotion of getting in out, out of trees with all the leaves on it, a lot less branches for that large of a wingspan to do not collide when they're coming in uh, to congregate. Plus they can fit a lot more on a, a dead branch, a sturdy dead branch than, than uh, a tree with a lot of leaves on it. I'm sure one of my biologist friends will, will ping me for that if I'm incorrect, but that's, I have, yeah, I have read that as the, as the reason they've got big wings and yeah. they've got to come into that area and it's yeah. just much easier. Very to similar to like yeah. Canada geese, yeah. so not in trees, but it, it takes, it takes a lot of space for them to, the, the, take off they have that room so the smaller ponds they tend to have a hard time getting up and they got to have a, a decent runway to get and, up so and they don't tend to have any innate desire to hide like no, so many yeah, they, birds they don't, do they yeah, don't they care don't, about they don't hiding really, from us yeah no they're the vulture's biggest issue is uh uh high tension power lines and uh getting clipped by vehicles as i described to our truck driver mm-hmm. happens all the time and past in fact uh i don't know if ann saw it this morning but on the trace there was a hawk and a vulture that got clipped you know uh, i feel so. like they know it's a problem they're pretty smart birds because have you mm-hmm. noticed if they can they'll they'll move things oh off yeah to yeah, the side of the road yeah, vultures are not they stupid. know they could get hit yeah they're, no they're not they're not stupid but yes they will they will congregate and that getting into our conversation here today, uh, both in rural and urban uh, sectors, I have many, many calls, and our friend Chris Godwin deals with this all the time. Yeah. Um, kind of the good, bad, and ugly of, of, of vultures. They're good in the sense that we'd have a lot of other dead stuff laying around if they weren't around. Uh, but particularly black vultures can be, um, I would say, the term uber. This is not scientific, uber aggressive. Um, um, <laughs> In cattle operations, uh, particularly when uh, uh, you know young of the year are being dropped by by the mamas, um, can be aggressive towards the afterbirth, but also the unfortunately the rear end of of some of our cattle, so it can cause some damage uh, uh, not only to the the critter but also the farmer's livelihood. Um, but they also I've had a lot of calls of people having roosts over their houses. And the defecation is ungodly, um, and it's extremely difficult to get them to move from those roost sites and once they've established. So, yeah, if we have callers that have that problem, I guess we might as well mention there are some things that can be done. Give us a call, or, yeah. or an email, and we can. Yeah, there set are you legal things right that can people. be done. Yes. They are, even though they can have damage issues, they are still protected under federal law. But there are things that. Um, particularly non-lethal things that can be uh, done with that. There are lethal options in a very, very limited circumstances, but there's a lot of permitting that has to go through with that. Um, so if you have those issues, reach out to your local extension office, Mississippi Department of Life, Fisheries and Parks, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and or USDA Wildlife Services. So we have a really good crews in all those departments here in Mississippi. Uh, Flint, I want to hear about the coyotes. Okay. It's interesting you mentioned the, uh, the congregation of the vultures and the excrement. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, near the Waterworks Curve, um, uh, there was an uh, ambulance chaser attorney who had a billboard, and all the uh, vultures <laughs> got on top, and the gentleman's forehead had excrement raining down on it for about six months. So, my, my question on the, on the uh, coyotes, very uh, surprised to hear that they're you know, quasi-urban. Would they eat things like downtown rats? Yeah, coyotes uh, are what we call a 
highly successful omnivore. They're going to eat pretty much anything that's in front of them. They actually eat a lot of insects, uh, um, uh, fruit, berries, um, outdoor cats, uh, to, to rats, birds, pretty much anything that's going to fit in their mouth they can get a hold of, they're going to, they're going to uh, target. Um, it, linking back to the beaver uh, thing, uh, a cousin of the coyote, uh, uh, wolves up up north and out west, um, more and more are finding that they specialize on targeting uh, uh, beavers that are moving in the spring to different ponds. That I think like 60 or 70%, I think I just recently heard their diet is beaver, which would be perfect for a wolf because they're extremely large protein balls and fat that time of year. Um, but then yeah, they switch yeah. off to other That's things. So, meal. Yeah. so all dogs, all dogs, including our, like my lab, will eat black oil sunflower seeds if I leave them out in the backyard too long from the bird feeder, um, are quite om, om, omnivorous in that sense. We think of them as primarily meat eaters, um, but uh, the vast majority of us feed them, you know, probably corn-based meal. Uh, so they eat a lot of vegetation uh, and other things with that. So, yes, they would easily eat a rat. Well, you know the old Aldo Leopold study of the mm-hmm. wolves. When mm-hmm. they really started studying what wolves ate, most of it was rodents. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. It's mm-hmm. what they could get. Yeah, especially your your foxes. Uh, there's a reason why we call it mousing. I mean, they mm-hmm. spend most of their time going after those things. So, Thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. You too. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. I tell you what, let's go ahead and take uh, this next caller, Rosie from Tupelo. Rosie, you are on the air. Hey, hi, Dr. Ronke. Uh, this is Rosie. <laughs> hi, um, Rosie. How you doing? <laughs> good. How are you? Good. It's good to hear from you. Ro- Rosie's pulling one on us. She was my intern this summer. <laughs> and she was heartbroken hi. that she couldn't make the radio show this summer. Uh, but uh, I'm glad that you're on the show with, with Libby Hartfield. Who, Libby, you do not realize the level of uh, hero and admirer you now have on the line. So I'm going to be quiet and let her talk to Libby because she's wanted to talk to you for a long time <laughs> hi rosie i would like oh, to talk hi. to you <laughs> so i had a legitimate question because <laughs> uh somebody was asking me this thanksgiving about uh chronic wasting disease in deer and um how extended hunting seasons could help that or if not um and so I just had some questions about that because I did not know what to tell them. I said, I wish Dr. Ronke was here so I could ask him. And, you know, and I, I wish Willie McKinley was here to answer that, yeah. uh, and he will be. Um, yeah, especially up in your neck of the woods, which is one of our main epicenters. I just met with William two days ago, um, and he was supposed to be here with us uh, today, but got pulled away uh, on some administrative duties actually related to chronic wasting disease with the new uh, – new detection down in Harrison County. So, um, yeah, in, in a nutshell, it's, it's, uh, it's can be complicated and it's, it's localized in those, those areas of the state with the, the different management, uh, tools being used. So I, I am not going to, uh, step out too far of that box because I have colleagues that, uh, are much better at it than I, but up in the North part of the state, um, that is, uh, that is our big hotspot coming coming over the Tennessee line. I just yeah. saw the map the other day with William, and I mean, you, you lose count. There's so many, yeah. so many uh, uh, positive IDs there. But um, um, so there's different techniques that they're they're trying in those areas of you know, possibly reducing or reducing certain 
parts of the population uh, to try to uh, contain is not the correct word. Basically, manage the expansion of it. It's unfortunately likely inevitable, but there's things that they can can try to do if everyone plays ball between turning in uh, their their samples in those areas that are now uh, legally required uh, in those zones, but uh, also um, deploying, as you were alluding to, uh, different harvest strategies. But that would be very yeah. specific to the zones, uh, the zone up in the north part of the state, the zone that's in the South Delta region, and likely the new zone that's going to show up in Harrison now. Yeah, I think that's imperative that people start testing their deer. They really need yeah. to. And I know that's one more step nobody right. wants to have to bother with, right. but it's important for your family and right. for your deer herd. And there's extensive information, Rosie, uh, to whoever was asking you that on the uh, Department of Wildlife Fishery Parks website. And then yeah. uh, Dr. Brunson Strickland, who you, I think you got to meet briefly, um, mm-hmm. has a lot on the uh, MSU uh, Deer Lab uh, website about yeah. chronic wasting disease. So that's the two directions I would send send your folks uh, to. And okay. I think William's going to be on in January. Yeah, Jan- third third Thursday of of January. January right talking now. more yeah. about it. So and he's he's captain the CWD, uh, being the deer program coordinator. <laughs> yeah. So. What a, what a title. Yeah, exactly. It's good to hear from you, Rosie. And we'll, we will talk soon before I head to New York. Yeah, and I'm, I see a downy woodpecker and a ruby crown kinglet right now. There you oh, go. great. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, call us anytime. Awesome. Well, y'all have a great holiday. You Thanks too, Rosie. Thank you, Rosie. What a sweet little surprise for you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's great to hear from her. Awesome. Well, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, Adam, is there anything else you're involved in that you want to share with us before we close out? <clears throat> yeah, a couple couple things. Um, as usual, we, we get a lot of phone calls and we don't get to all our stuff, so it gives us an opportunity to come back. But uh, the project we were talking about initially, the Urban Wildlife Project here in the Jackson Metro, you can just Google Jackson Urban Wildlife Story Map, and it'll be the first thing to come up. It's just the easiest way to get to it. The story map is essentially a glorified web page or a web website uh, that Anne that's sitting next to me here has been working on and will be getting more glorious as she works on it. Um, but it highlights our program, what we're doing, and also highlights a lot of our sites and the information and what we're seeing there. Uh, so I would recommend that. Um, I have a couple other uh, colleagues that have a couple things going on. I'm getting lost in my own notes now. Let's see here. Da, da, da. Here we go. Uh, so, again, since we're talking about urban urban deer briefly, we didn't get to a, a lot of it. But, again, the Department of Life, Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks.com has got a lot of white-tailed deer information. Um, our MSU Deer Lab is nationally and internationally known for, for their work on all things deer. They have MSU Deer uh, YouTube TV. Uh, they also have a very popular MSU Deer University podcast. Oh, wow. Um, that uh, Dr. Damaris and Dr. Strickland are, uh, again, nationally and internationally known for. So go check those out uh, if you want to learn about anything whether you're a hunter or not, they got all things deer uh, that you're interested in, particularly about chronic wasting disease. They have a lot of info on that, too. There's, there's more information on those two websites than you have time left in likely your lifespan to digest. Um, but the other thing I would like to say, a good colleague of mine, uh, uh, Beth Baker, uh, that runs our water stewards program. 
uh, along with Pearl Riverkeeper and Abby Brahman, who I know has been on the show. They're having a Mississippi Water Stewards training January 15th. So if you go to the Extension Service website or Pearl River Keeper website, they have sign-up information there um, if you want to become a volunteer to help with water sampling uh, across the Pearl River and particularly here in the Jackson Metro. So if you want to become a citizen science, that's uh, a citizen scientist, come, come join their program. It'll be at the Natural Science Museum. Very cool. Right. Plenty of opportunities for Mississippians to get involved. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you, Libby. Thank you, Dr. Major. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. To hear today's show or previous shows, just search for Creature Comforts on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public media app. Today's show was produced and engineered by the one and only Abram Nanny. Our call screener was Will Pickering. For Dr. Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Adam, I'm Lacey Alexander filling in for Kevin Farrell. Up next is our Thursday 10 a.m. show Autocorrect with Coach Charlie Melton. And tune in next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.